You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman, powered by Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. This show is driven to provide relatable hunting and outdoor content in the Keystone State and surrounding Northeast. On this show, you'll hear an array of perspectives from biologists and industry professionals to average Joes with a lifetime of knowledge. All centered around values aiming to be better outdoorsmen and women, both in the field as well as home and daily life. No clicks, no self-interest, just delight in the pursuit of creation. And now, your host, the pride of Pennsylvania, the man who shoots straight, won't steer you wrong. Johnny Appleseed himself. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Mitchell Shirk. Welcome back this week to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. Guys, thanks for joining in. And uh, this week, I want to talk a little bit about the sixth sense. I think so many of us talk about whitetails and the game that we hunt and how they might have a sixth sense. And in a lot of time, I've, I've even read things that, pe- you know, they, people believe there's some kind of sense of, like, the electromagnetic field that we put off as, you know, as mammals and everything else. And, you know, I, I've heard that saying so many times, and, and it always seems like game catches you off guard when you're least, in, you know, when you're least expecting it, right? When you're not expecting to, to have something catch you, you know, that's when something happens. I've felt that happen a lot of times. Well, I'm here to tell you I believe that humans also have a sixth sense. And the reason I say that is because from the ages of 0 to 24 months, I swear to God that they they know when you're about ready to relax and go to sleep in the middle of the night, and then they start screaming. And then you go to put them down, and just about the time that you think, yep, they're out, they're asleep, I'm going to sneak out of their room, they shoot up like a rocket and start screaming and carrying on. <laughs> it just seems like it was one of those nights when, I, as, as I'm recording this, it's early in the morning, Monday morning, and I, uh, I had that exact experience. One of my, my youngest got up, and I literally spent almost an hour with him trying to get him to settle. And he, he would he would settle. He would relax. He'd fall asleep. And the minute that I would walk out, within five minutes, he would be standing up in his crib, screaming, and I was ready to oh, throw the kid. But anyway, uh, took care of that. And I thought, what better opportunity than to get this week's episode ready to bring to you because this is a fun one this week. Um, With us being right around the corner to deer season, you know, this week is midway through August. It's hard to believe that I'm saying that out loud, but midway through August and in six weeks or less, you're going to be able to shoot deer. And warmer part of the season, maybe you've got 
pretty good stash of meat left over from last year. Maybe you've got some other meat sources in your freezer, and maybe you're not pressing to uh, to shoot a deer, but you've got maybe you're hunting in an area that you've got opportunities to take deer out because we've got plenty of deer, and we need to you know as hunters do our due diligence and bring deer numbers down in certain places. And you're wondering what to do with a deer, this week's guest is going to tell you all about it. If you haven't heard of the Hunter Sharing the Harvest program, you need to look into it. And this week we chat with Randy Ferguson, who is going to share a lot about it, how it got started. It's it's kind of like it's grassroots movement. Um, and where throughout the state this occurs, how it occurs, and what it looks like for you as a hunter. And, you know, the awesome thing about it is you can contribute at no cost. You literally, it is just you donating, donating the deer, bringing it to a processor that is enrolled and is already part of this. And other than than presenting that deer and filling out the proper paperwork, you do nothing. And I personally think it's an all. You know, Randy shared with us that last year, I think he said they had over two hundred thousand pounds of venison donated. Think about how big that is. Think about the amount of people in our country and our state and everything else that are looking for food, and you as a hunter help them make that happen. Like that, that's awesome. So. You know, if that's something new to you, if you're thinking about what to do with, with some of your hunting opportunity and, and make, or maybe expanding your hunting season, I think this is an episode that hopefully will shift some gears for you and make you uh, just think outside the box as far as deer season goes. That's all. Um, so let's get to this episode with Randy. Before we do, real quick, want to give our shout out to our partners, Radix Hunting. Uh, I have been running trail cameras now for a few weeks. Um, I, I got a couple more to do. I'm on my way out to uh, do some work at the one property I have, and I'm going to put some more Radix cameras up. Guys, if you want to get more of their regular SD card trail cameras, the Gen 600 series, fantastic image quality, excellent trigger response, excellent price points these are these are really high quality cameras that aren't going to break the bank they are they're something that anybody would want in their arsenal um core cell cameras you've got the ability to have a cell camera that is priced affordably excellent image quality even for a cell camera and I, i'm i'm telling you this has been stuff that I have really enjoyed having in my toolbox. Cameras are very important to me, and I want something that's reliable. And Radix fits the, the bill, and they're great people to work with. They've uh, they've also got a host of other products. Check out their stick and pick trail camera accessories from tripods to trail camera mounts and everything else. And uh, also their hunting blinds. Check out their hunting blinds if that's something you want to add in. Also, let's talk about Huntworth. Right now, as we speak, going on, there is a Black Friday in August sale where you can get up to 30% off on on Huntworth gear. So go over to HuntworthGear.com and check out that that sale. It's going. It's a preseason sale going till Sunday, August 27th at midnight. So. Get your disruption pattern, get your tarnin pattern with whatever clothing you need. Guys, this is clothing that makes me feel really, really comfortable when I use it. It's 
flexible, it keeps you warm, it keeps you dry, and it's not going to break the bank. This is stuff, and it's a Pennsylvania-based company. That's the other thing I love about it. So check out Huntworth and this sale. And with that, guys, let's get to this week's episode. Joining me today on this week's show, I've got Randy Ferguson from Hunter Sharing the Harvest. Randy, thanks for joining us. What's going on? Hey, I appreciate the opportunity. It's uh, it's a busy time of year here in Pennsylvania. Everybody's thinking about hunting, and uh, we certainly are too here at Hunter Sharing the Harvest. There's a lot uh, a lot of moving parts and things to get together here before things start happening. And the arrows fly here in another month and a half or so. Yeah, talk about getting ready for hunting season. We're sitting here on a video chat, and you've got a one of those backgrounds is set up, and it looks like a perfect October morning with the sun rising uh-huh. up. So it's like making it's making me lick my chops a little bit at that thought of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so man makes what's, me wish i was really there with that backdrop behind me so yeah <laughs> so man what's been going on in your world you say you've been pretty busy with uh you know in, uh, connecting with people and just getting stuff prepped for uh prep for this fall yeah it seems like we've been on a on a big old long couple months long victory lap here since we uh announced some record numbers here from the 2022-23 hunting season a couple months ago and uh Ever since then, you know, things have been busy just promoting that and, and talking about the way uh, Pennsylvania hunters have been stepping up for our program. And then at the same time, every year in late July and into August, I get super busy because that's when we're ordering supplies for the year. You know, I'm, I'm ordering uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, probably 50,000 or so meat bags that get distributed out to, uh, to our processors all around the states. We're updating forms. We're updating contracts. We always send out a big packet. Uh, here in the next week or two to all of our processors, just giving them a bunch of updates on things to look forward to for the new season and any little changes and tweaks that we've got to the program. So it's a crazy busy time of uh, year, but uh, it's super exciting for me because I just start thinking about, you know, how are we going to top last year? That's very cool. And I didn't do the best job of introducing you and introducing Hunter sharing the harvest in that, that event. So do, do me a favor and like just Brief us on on who you are, how you got started with this organization. What you know for those if anybody doesn't really know what HSH is about, you know how did it get started? When that that whole you know the whole uh, introduction sort of thing. Sure, absolutely. So Hunter Sharing the Harvest actually we've been officially uh, a five hundred one c three organization for thirty two years now. We were founded in nineteen ninety one by John Plowman and Ken Brandt. And actually, it's kind of interesting because the history of the organization actually dates back a few years prior to that, uh, when it was referred to as Pennsylvanians for the Responsible Use of Animals. And at that point in time, and this was, I want to say, in the mid-80s, maybe 86, 85, 86, somewhere in there, when that first kind of rendition of this organization formed. And it was it was under that name for about four or five years. And I think at some point in time, they kind of decided that the name maybe wasn't the most appropriate for what they were doing. I think people were probably a little confused by what responsible use of animals was all about. Uh, I remember even as a kid, you know, at the time I was probably in my teens, 14, 15 years old. And I remember seeing and hearing about this maybe through the game news or something like that. And and even at that age, I was kind of thinking to myself, what what's that all about? You know, <laughs> what, what's that what's that group right. doing? Uh, but uh the long and short of it is, is really what it was and what it became in 1991 is, is basically a network that was trying to, to really coordinate some of the efforts that had been done on more of a one-off type of uh, situation for probably many years, specifically with 
state game wardens who would have deer that might be confiscated from a hunter, mistake kills or, you know, things of that nature, dispatch deer that they had to put down and so forth that they would make sure got processed. And then they would uh, just out of their own good and a lot of times out of their own wallet, uh, they would have those deer taken care of and then they would distribute them to needy families in their communities. So that type of thing was going on for quite a few years. And these gentlemen were both very tied in with that. Uh, John Plowman worked for the Game Commission at the time. Kenny Brandt was a state representative. And the two of them started putting their heads together and just trying to figure out how they could formalize some sort of program like this and actually start to pull in an opportunity for hunters themselves to donate deer if they wanted to. And it was really kind of a novel idea back then. Um, as I'm finding out here over the last few years, talking with some of my counterparts around the states, uh, there were a number of other programs that were starting right around the same time. So it was almost like collectively people were starting to think about this whole notion. And, and Pennsylvania's program really got a lot of notoriety in the early years. And over uh, the many years since, we've, we've been, our program has really been emulated by a lot of states. We have a, a real nice sort of a camaraderie between some of the other states that have these venison donation programs because we're all run a little bit differently. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people kind of assume that that we're part of a greater national organization or something like that, and there really is no such thing. Uh, just each state is doing things a little bit differently. So here in Pennsylvania, we're a 501c3 charitable organization. Um, some people think that we're officially tied to the Game Commission, which we're not. We're a totally separate organization, but we work very closely with the Game Commission, obviously, because there are a lot of real shared kind of object objectives and missions there, quite frankly. Uh, and then in other states, uh, their programs might be run by their version of the Game Commission or a DNR or something like that. Uh, a couple of the states are departments of their Wildlife Federation in that state. So everybody's run a little bit differently. Um, but Pennsylvania has really been kind of a model for this program over the years. And the way the, pro the process works is that we found a way to make sure that the processors get paid for what they do so that a hunter that wants to donate a deer doesn't have to have a financial commitment to the process. They should mm. be able to walk away satisfied that they did their good by donating a deer and not have to also put the bill for that processing. So, so we've created a mechanism where where the hunters or the hunters have the opportunity to donate deer to those who can use the food in their communities. The processors are getting paid because they're obviously super busy during the hunting season and they really can't be uh, expected to donate all that overhead and time and materials and so forth. So we make the process as easy as we possibly can uh, mm. for hunters in the field to be able to provide venison for those in their communities. Tell, tell me a little bit about the, the the spread across the state as far as distributors. And you're talking about providing um you know, supplies of such nature and, you know, funding is a big question in all this too. So, I mean, can you dig a little bit into that? Like what opportunities do hunters across the state have depending on where you're located um, and, you know, the resources and able to, to, to learn about how they can do this? Yeah, there's, there's really a lot of different ways people can help this organization. If you like this notion of hunters helping their, uh, their neighbors and basically uh, the way the program works is we have about 100 participating processors around the state that work with us. We try to have as good a saturation of, of processors throughout the whole entire state so that a hunter shouldn't have to go too awful far to be able to donate a deer. Uh, but we do have 
a lot of spots within the state that we that we desperately need processors. So we're always kind of in processor recruitment mode, uh, but we do have about 100 of them that are scattered around the state. We have about 50 uh, volunteer county coordinators that are really kind of the folks that help put a face on the organization in their local communities, and they uh, they work closely with their processors to help make sure that they don't end up with uh, venison that's sitting in the freezer taking up space while they're trying to to move new deer in and out as rapidly as possible. Um, and from there, because of the fact that we our largest expense is the reimbursement of processors, we're always looking for partners that want to support our mission in one way or another. So that could be corporate partners that see kind of a, a shared kind of mission or uh, maybe their uh, their market or their workforce are very uh, hunting related and, and interested in this type of uh, novel sort of idea. So they'll get behind us as sponsors um, and then individual donors can help us out. They can go on the website and donate five, ten, twenty five dollars, whatever might be comfortable for them. So we're uh, we're always out there looking for for folks that want to help in one way or another. So there's a lot of ways you can do that. So tell me a little bit. You said that last season was was kind of some record breaking situations for for you guys, and I'm kind of curious since you've been there and everything else, and the, the data you have. Like, tell me how that trend has has been for HSH. You know how is how is this uh, this organization grown? How has the the use of it grown across our state? Um, I, I'm because because what I'm trying to draw from this is you know, I'm thinking back to you know, generations before me when they hunted, you know, everybody went to deer camp, they shot their deer, they filled their freezer and they were done. And since then the dynamic has changed within our herd and within the mentality of our people. And I'm wondering at what point you started to see that really grow. And I'm sure there's, there's merit to, um, you know, as a, as a, a movement goes, it takes time for it to gain traction and grow and, you know, get the face out there too. So there's probably that variable. And I'm just kind of curious your perspective of the growth over the past few years. Yeah, it's been it's been really phenomenal over the years, and it really seems like it's accelerated over these last maybe five to seven years or so. It took us a very long time over the years. We've always had a goal of 100,000 pounds of venison, and it took us probably the first, uh, let's see, 12, 13 years before the first time ever that, that Hunter Sharing the Harvest broke that 100,000 mark. And I want to say it was somewhere in the mid to early first decade of the 2000s, around 2004, 2005, somewhere in there, uh, when we broke that 100,000 pound record for the first time. And then there was a little slip backwards for a few years where it dropped that back down to maybe 75, 80,000 pounds, somewhere in there. And throughout those first 20 years or so, we had what we considered uh, a copay that we asked of the hunters. So you would donate the deer and then we would ask you to pay $15 for the processing. And really that was a large portion of the funding for us to be able to then reimburse processors at the end of the year. Which might I say is not a lot. Right, right. But at the same time, we always still were kind of torn by that because again, we we really, we wanted to be in a place where the hunter could just donate the deer and not have to then pay anything toward it. Although yeah, $15 wasn't a big, big ask for anybody. I don't think for the most part, uh, but here about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, largely due to support from the oil and gas industry, and then also at the same time, really the Game Commission and 
The Department of Agriculture had both really kicked up their support of our operations and what we do. And so we were then, with the help of those partners, we were able to eliminate that copay. And the very first year after that copay went away, uh, we saw about a 20 or so thousand pound increase in donations right away. So that kind of set the stage. And at that point, since then, we've been in over 100,000 pound numbers every year since. And in recent years, it just seems like every year we're breaking a new record. And, and it's just phenomenal to see how the, uh, the recognition of the program is growing. People are getting a lot more familiar with the name. They, they start to, to know that Pennsylvania does, in fact, have a venison donation program. But at the same time, as I travel around the state, you know, I, I get one of two responses when I talk about what I do and I mention the name of this organization. It's either a blank stare and the response that says, oh, I didn't know Pennsylvania had anything like this. I didn't know we could donate deer. Or the response is someone who's familiar with HSH. Maybe they've donated deer themselves, but it's one thing or another. Um, and really, when we look at the numbers, which which are tremendous, we've had these ridiculously good years. And I can talk a little bit more about last season here in a minute. But we look at the numbers. Last year, we had 6,000 deer donated, a little over 6,000 deer, which is tremendous. Wow. But when you look at the total deer harvest in Pennsylvania, that's about one and a half percent or so of the total deer harvest that, that was that was recognized last year. So there's a lot of opportunity for us to still uh, extend our mission and get people familiar with what we're doing because there are just so many more opportunities these days for us to fill up to, you know, half a dozen tags if we've taken advantage of every opportunity we have. And most of us, let's face it, we might go through a deer or two among our family in, in the freezer. And then from there, anything beyond that is something that we could probably share with others. So there's a lot of opportunity. There's just sort of a perfect storm right now where people are really starting to, to, uh, to grow their response to this organization. All right, folks, it's that time of year for fall food plot planning, and this year I'm proud to be working with Vitalize Seed. I work with them because they're great people and they're extremely passionate about wildlife and soil health. My fall food plots will be planted in Vitalize's Carbon Load, a 16-way diverse mix that is highly attractive to whitetails and has countless benefits to soil and soil health. If you've ever been overwhelmed by the hundreds of different seed blends on the market, check out Vitalize's 1-2 planting system. It's designed how nature intended, to make biology work for you. Now each plant species in the blend has the proper ratio of seed to grow synergistically, not allowing any to outcompete another. This provides season-long forage for wildlife as well as benefiting the soil biome. There's no need for complex crop rotations with monocultures that are susceptible to drought and overbrowsing. Whether you plant with fancy no-till equipment or bag spreader and a lawnmower, Vitalize can work in any food plot. For more information about Vitalize and soil health practices, visit VitalizeSeed.com and be sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook. Radix Hunting was founded on premium-grade trail cameras and continues striving to produce the best cellular and conventional trail cameras on the market today. The Gen 600 is a second-generation camera from the Gen Series line. With premium video and audio recording capabilities, this product has become well-respected as the HD video trail camera. In addition to the Gen Series cameras, their M-Core cellular camera has all the features of a quality cell camera at an affordable price. Along with their cameras, they offer stick-and-pick trail camera accessories to allow you to set your cameras just right. 
You can find it all at RaddixHunting.com and be sure to follow Radix Hunting on Instagram and Facebook. Want to check out Radix cameras in person? Stop in at Little Mountain Outfitters in Richland, Pennsylvania and have a peek. Now, back to the show. That's fantastic. So I I want to dive into like the after part, like where it goes. So like you've got uh, you've got a, a kind of like a mindset throughout people where, you know, they're very pro, you know, let's shoot some deer. There's places throughout the state where we've got high numbers that it's, you know, it's makes sense to, to reduce the deer population and maybe take a few extra does. And you've got the opportunity in some of those units to kill multiple does. And uh, then there's, there's also, I've, I've met lots of people, talk with lots of people that, you know, one deer is good enough for them. They, they purchase a doe tag, but they're, of course, they're always holding out for a buck. And then there's always that time frame where they're like, well, not really sure I want to deal with the doe right now or, you know, this and that. And then, and then they end up not shooting a, a deer just because of the, the thought of the work and the meat. So I, I think one thing that could change that mindset, like let's say we've got a property that is high with deer population, right? And, uh, you don't really think about the aftermath of where that goes. So tell us a little bit about, you know, we're talking about pounds of meat and processing, but I want to know where it goes. Like, t- tell me about the, whether it's shelters or families that, that are able to like, how, how does that look and, and give us some feedback? Like w- what's been the response from this organization helping people from that end of the spectrum? I'll tell you what, it's it's just tremendous. And it's it's interesting because I've been in this role for a little over two years now. And prior to that, I was a county coordinator for Mercer County and Crawford County here in western Pennsylvania. And so I had always kind of, you know, I had an idea of what we're doing. And I had a sense from my kind of little bubble here in these two counties. And I knew where a couple of the specific uh, food pantries where deer was going where it was being sent to. And so I could kind of see the impact there. But until I started in this role about two and a half years ago and really have had the opportunity to get around the state as I'm visiting with processors and visiting with some of our partners in the food bank system and so forth, that's when I've really seen the impact and I've seen how much people appreciate what what hunters are doing in Pennsylvania. Because one of the things that you find as you talk to people in the the, the food uh, distribution system around the state is that they clamor for any kind of good protein source, because, you know, typically uh, your your food pantries and, and that type of thing, they're going to receive dry goods and canned goods and things of that nature. The typical things that you see when someone's doing a food drive, for instance, in that box that sits in an employer's office or whatever that people fill up with cans and, and crackers and rice and things of that nature. But they're really hard pressed to have good, fresh meat. I mean, it just it just doesn't happen that often. So. What I see around the state is people who are hungry, who may have never experienced wild game in their life, and they're offered this protein source, and they are just so thankful for it. It does so much good for them and their families. They don't. It doesn't matter at that point whether whether they were ever a hunter, whether they ever felt themselves aligned with the whole idea of hunting and eating wild game. But when they're in that situation where where they're hungry and their family is hungry, uh, that protein source is so precious to them that that they they just absolutely appreciate it. We hear constantly stories from from all these various food relief organizations telling us just how much 
their clientele really appreciate it. We hear personal stories from people. I've even heard stories like one gentleman out in eastern Pennsylvania who had, I believe it was a son who had uh, some certain health conditions that made it almost impossible for him to eat most meats. But because of the very low fat content in venison, for whatever reason, they had discovered at some point in time and they discovered through the fact that they were given venison at one of the distributions and then were talking to the doctor and so forth and found that the venison didn't have the same effect on his son. So now they discovered that, you know, although they won't always be able to get venison through that particular source, that it is another type of meat that that young, young person can eat uh, and that doesn't adversely affect him from his health condition. And, you know, that's just one example, but this deer meat is being provided through local community shelters, um, food banks, soup kitchens. So in other words, sometimes it's being handed out in the one or two pound chub bags that it's been processed into uh, for folks to prepare at home, or it's being used in a typical, like you would consider a soup kitchen type of format where maybe they're, they're making chili or sloppy joes or spaghetti sauce or something like that in large quantities and then and then distributing it that way. We give our processors a lot of autonomy when it comes to where they send uh, the venison. But the good thing is, and the, and the one thing that's important for people to know is, it's always going to stay very close within that community because typically what we ask them to do is when they have venison that's been processed and they need it out of their uh, freezer, they will either call their regional food bank, and there's seven of those around the state that then distribute out any provided food to all of their different member agencies in that region. And that's kind of our preferred way to do it because that's their job and that's what they do well. They're good at figuring out where the need is within their service areas. But at the same time, if a processor has a local uh, church or soup kitchen or food pantry that they're familiar with and that they know desperately needs that meat and that they'll come running when they have meat available, they can reach right out to them directly as well and just, just work directly with their local community. But either way, even if it's going to the regional food bank, you know, they're, they're, they're servicing uh, a select number of counties right around that area. So the food is still staying, staying very close to home and helping their neighbors. So. Yeah, that was one of the things that I was, uh, you, and you answered it. I, I was wondering, like, I didn't know how the distribution would work. I didn't know that there was seven regional, you know, food banks across the state and that there was, you know, um, you know, the, the need for it. Like, I'm kind of curious, the, I mean, so you talked about over a hundred thousand pounds of meat. Like, do you have any grasp of where that meets, where that is, and as far as meeting demand within the state, like I, I know that's a tough question, but I'm like wondering, like if there's a certain level of demand, are we coming anywhere close in that protein source? Yeah, we really are. We really are. So the one figure that's fairly well agreed is that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.5 to 1.7 million people in the state of Pennsylvania that are considered food insecure. And that essentially means that you're in a situation where you don't necessarily know where your next meal is coming from. So that makes you what would qualify as food insecure. So when we try to look at the impact of our program and quantify that, we use a factor of about five servings per pound because that's based on the American Heart Association's recommendation of three to four ounces of lean red meat in a serving. 
So now we've got a multiplier that we can use. So last year, we had a record-breaking year here in Pennsylvania. As a matter of fact, it was a nation-leading venison donation effort. We had 235,532 pounds of venison that were donated wow. in Pennsylvania for 6,000 deer. So you do that math, and that 235,000 pounds times five for that for that multiplier leaves you at around 1.25 million servings. So again, that's just a serving. That's not a meal. That's not necessarily obviously connecting with every one of those 1.5 million food insecure people. But when you put those numbers together, you can tell that we're definitely making an impact. That and when you talk to folks in the food bank system, they they agree that that this this program is truly making a difference because of the sheer number of pounds that they're able to to share and and the impact that it has on their clientele. So we can definitely get some numbers around it. And that's very important to us. The other thing that's important to us is always trying to figure out where we've got gaps, because like I said earlier, we have some counties where we don't have a processor. Uh, and so it gets very difficult for hunters, obviously, to be able to uh, conveniently take a deer somewhere to be processed. So we're always trying to find processors in, in counties where we don't have them, uh, because while we're making a very great impact throughout the state. There are certainly those areas, you know, one of the things we're working on right now is working with software to actually help us visually be able to see where the saturation points are, where distribution is strong and where it's very weak so that we can really identify those areas where we need to be able to increase distribution. So it's constantly on our mind. But when you look at the impact, it is, it's a very tangible impact. Yeah, 200 state. plus thousand pounds of meat. I mean, to me, that sounds like a pretty exponential jump. Was there any anything in your mind that might have caused that to jump so quickly, specifically? To be honest with you, I think here in the last couple of years, it's it's been a combination of things. Um, first of all, the Pennsylvania Game Commission and the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture have just been tremendous partners in what we do because they're so supportive of our mission uh, the Department of Ag, because uh, they are ultimately also responsible for things like food distribution around the state and the Game Commission, because our mission really fits very well with their mission as well. They're trying to manage the deer herd in Pennsylvania. That's why we have so many opportunities to harvest so many deer. They want to make sure those tags are utilized as much as possible. And as you kind of alluded to earlier, uh, a lot of hunters will say, and I'm, and I'm one of them myself, where in my family, you know, especially now that, that our kids are basically all out of the house and we've got grandkids and so forth. And, uh, so between my wife and I, she's not a, she's not a big venison consumer. So if I get a deer in the freezer, it's going to be good. That's, that's all we need for the year. So I could potentially be filling three or four more tags, uh, throughout different seasons and different tag opportunities. And, now, if I'm aware of a program like HSH, I'm going to be thinking, okay, I can have more days of field. I can, I can be able to go out there and enjoy hunting like I want to harvest more deer and not have that sort of quandary of what do I do with this deer now that I've harvested it? Uh, so I think there's just, there's kind of factors like that that are at play. I think people are starting to get more familiar with the program. The game commission has been tremendous with us when it comes to sort of in-kind support and financial support of what we do. 
but you'll notice in the in the hunting digest each year this year i think it's on page 60 a full page ad for hunter sharing the harvest just talking about all the ways people can help us uh last year we got a nice ad in the game or the game news uh in about the october or november issue so the timing was perfect there uh, and that visibility is just tremendous for us because most of our growth over the years has really been what you would consider grassroots i mean you know, we reach out to the media. We do get good support from from the outdoor media here in Pennsylvania and so forth. But but most of it ends up really at the end of the day being word of mouth. Well, now in these more recent years, we've we've also been able to get some of the, the traction that comes from having good partners, uh, sponsors and then supporters like the Game Commission and the Department of Agriculture that are out there. They're able to use that very large audience that they have and a mechanism to help talk about our mission. So I think all of these different factors are just really playing a part. Yeah, that's big. You know, I think a lot of people, and I've heard this in many conversations about, you know, the emotional attachment to shooting a deer and so many people, you know, it, don't get me wrong. There is kind of like a, I don't know if sacred's the right word or something like that, but people get very, very attached to shooting a deer and using that mean consuming their families and then, uh, I've there's there's that ideology that shooting more than what you need outside of your measures is almost like greedy. But the, the question I have for you, so I was always told that roughly 10% of the population is hunters, 10% is anti-hunters, and about 80% of the community is neutral. And from your perspective, this is just me really just an opinion question with something like HSH where you're sharing the harvest a part of the harvest that people typically would never most of that 80 percent would never get to experience like to me that can't have anything but a positive outlook for hunting like do you think that something like this really helps with that 80 percent outlook on hunting itself I really think it does I, th I think these venison donation programs here in Pennsylvania and around the country are really helping to fill a role within, you know, the whole, we look at uh, the R3 movement, for instance. Now that's more targeted at people who have either at some point in time been a part of the hunting community and maybe need to be re-engaged. Sometimes it is folks that have not been hunters in the past that we're trying to introduce to the hunting sports. But along that whole line of thinking is the fact that you're trying to, impact that 80% that you're talking about to, if nothing else, start to appreciate more the role that hunters play in society, in conservation, in wild resources management. And when you look at something like this, where now hunters are actually uh, fulfilling a social service to their communities, that puts a whole new face on the hunting community. And I think it's tremendously important. And we see it all the time from people who Again, they're in that 80%, but they step up and support our organization because while they may not be hunters, but they're not anti-hunters, uh, or maybe they were kind of on the fence a little bit about their feelings about the hunting community. But when they see this and they start to realize, okay, these people are kind of changing my image or my stereotype that I might have of the hunting community. It's definitely it's definitely a factor. It's definitely a factor because we see that every year. A lot of the organizations and companies and individuals that I see coming through and supporting us, um, I may not know specifically, but I can I can kind of surmise that they're from a scenario where they're probably in that 80 percent. They support our mission, 
They may not be familiar with what we are as hunters, but they like what we're doing. They like the fact that we're helping our neighbors. And to me, it's just, it's just tremendous. And I, and I don't think, I don't think you can, you can portray the hunting community better than one that's very sharing and caring for, for their neighbors. And it's something we've always been because we've always shared with our families and, and, you know, think about it, your dad and your granddad and folks like that probably shared with people around them or took venison to their local churches or whatever, because they had more than they needed or whatever. So that, that spirit has always been there in the hunting community. But when you're able to kind of organize that and put a, a, a larger face on that whole spirit, I think it, it can only do good for the, for the hunting sports and the hunting community. Absolutely. And one thought I had too. So there's a, last year was the first time that I went deer hunting outside the state of Pennsylvania. I went over to New Jersey in the overlapping deer and bear season. And I hunted with a friend who, who shot a buck, but at that point in the season, um, he had killed multiple doe and a buck in Pennsylvania and his need for venison was pretty low. And he found a, a friend that was willing to take that meat. And I was thinking, you know, if, if you, if you do it legally in an, in a neighboring state and then you handle the meat, uh, that, that follows the regulations from the CWD standpoint, disease management areas, um, is there an opportunity to, to also donate a deer in that situation? Yeah. Yeah, definitely CWD has has challenged us like it has the entire state and hunters everywhere over the last few years. Um, because early on, we developed a, a protocol that said, despite the fact that you as a hunter don't have to have your deer tested if you want to consume it yourself and your family, because of the fact that the food that we're providing is going to the public food system, we wanted to take that extra precaution to be able to reassure the community uh, that any venison that, that makes its way to the food bank system will be free of CWD. So we've had a rule in place for a number of years now that any deer harvested in a DMA that want to be donated have to be quarantined at the processor. Uh, the hunter has to go and have that head test done. And then when they get that negative result or not detected result, uh, then at that point in time, they communicate that back to the processor and the meat can be released. If for any reason it would be a deer that comes back positive for CWD, then it would just have to be disposed of the way the Game Commission wants those parts and meat disposed of at that point in time. So it was definitely a challenge and has been a challenge for a lot of our processors because, you know, a lot of them are really cramped when it comes to freezer space. So they really can't have venison sitting there for more than the few days it takes from them to to set it in the freezer, make the phone call to the hunter and have them come pick it up. So in this case, when you're waiting on a head test that might be taking a month or so to get back, uh, it has definitely strained some of our processors in those DMAs. And we did lose a number of them over the years where they just said, you know, I just can't, I can't take donated deer because of that reason. So, so now this year with the change in that rule where you're going to be able to take your deer out of the DMA as long as you're following the protocol for how you take care of that deer and the high risk parts and so forth. And as long as you take it to one of the processors that are on the game commission's cooperating processor list, that's going to open up a whole lot of opportunity for hunters. It's going to take some of the stress off of all the processors that are in those DMAs because a lot of those deer now will go back to the home county where that hunter lives to be processed. For our program, it is going to become a little bit more of a challenge now for our processors that are outside of the DMAs 
that haven't had to deal with that issue or that protocol for these years. So that's what I was just doing earlier this week is sending out a, a letter to all of our processors just to make sure they're aware of this change in the rule and the fact that they will have to comply with that protocol because we're not going to relax that rule uh, when it comes to our protocol of, of quarantining the deer meat, making sure we get a negative test result then before the, the meat gets released. So CWD has definitely been a challenge, but it doesn't it doesn't have to to preclude the donation of, of venison in those areas. That's for sure. Great. So walk me through, um, somebody wants to, who's, who's listening to this or have heard about it and they just finally decide, you know what, I'm going to shoot a deer and I'm going to donate it. Walk me through the entire process from beginning to finish. Obviously it needs to be a legally harvested deer and, you know, go through the, the, the legal tagging process, but walk me through from harvest to, um, the, the, the hunter is done. They've done everything the correct way to donate a deer. Yep. So basically what I what I recommend is a process that starts before you go hunting, and that's to check our website and look at who your participating processors are, either in your county or the county that you're going to be hunting in, so that you're familiar with who they are, where they are. Uh, you might even want to call ahead to some of them and make sure none of them have specific rules in place for when they're taking deer and when they aren't, uh, because a lot of our processors have really been stressed with the, with the concurrent seasons and uh, Saturday opening and then having hunting on the first Sunday and Monday. So you have right then some of them are really hitting some high volumes there and, and they might have some limitations to, to when they're taking deer. So you want to find that information out first, be familiar with where you're going to take that deer. And then at that point, like you said, as far as the, the hunting and the beginning of the don donation process, it's no different than what you'd be doing if you were going to have deer processed for your family. You're going to legally harvest that deer, field dress it, get it to one of our participating processors as quickly as possible. And at that point, you're just going to fill out a donor receipt for us where we're going to get some information about you basically so that we can reach out and thank you for your donation and keep in communication with you throughout the year. Uh, and then we're going to capture some information about, you know, whether this was an archery harvest, was it a firearms harvest? Uh, did it come from a special tag like a DMAP or a red tag? Uh, that type of thing. This year we've added, is it a buck or a doe? Just because it's not really, it's not really critical to the venison donation process, but for us, it's just data that we're interested in. And we like to be able to share that with the community and with our partners, because it's interesting to see how some of those trends change too over the years. So at any rate, at that point, when you fill out the donor receipt, your work is done. You're going to walk away with that receipt and the processor at that point in time is going to take that deer and they're going to process all of the venison into burger and package it into a one or two pound bag. Typically, uh, some of our processors will do some large five pound bags if they know it's going straight to like a soup kitchen where it's going to be fed in bulk. And at that point, uh, again, when they've got deer processed, they're going to either call the food bank, food pantry uh, directly and have them come pick up that venison or they'll call their local county coordinator who will help run some interference and maybe come pick up that deer meat and take it to wherever it needs to go. Uh, and that's really the process in the in a nutshell. On the processor's side, they're going to keep track of two copies of that donor receipt. It's a three-part receipt, so the hunter's going to get one. Uh, the processor's going to hang on to all of those donor receipts until the end of the season, and then they'll turn in a reimbursement form to me along with a copy of all of those receipts so that we can match all the accounting up. And then we reimburse the processor for each one of those deer. We pay each processor 
uh, a per deer rate. Uh, so that also always leads to one of the next questions that I hear is, can I decide to keep the back straps and the tenderloins and then uh, donate the rest? And frankly, our answer to that is you can. Uh, but if you're going to do that, we ask you to pay the processing fee mm-hmm. uh, because, frankly, we've negotiated a whole deer rate with each of our processors. So our expectation is that if it's if it's being donated, then that that whole deer is going to be processed. So and we always tell people if you have a need within your family for the venison, fill your family's needs first. And then at that point, when you're satisfied that you have what you need in the freezer, uh, you need to be at the, at that point willing and able to just donate that whole deer so yeah and i I, don't get me wrong i would love to to keep the back straps and stuff too but it's the concept of you have what you need if you've you know if you've already accomplished like what you just said i have filled the freezer i've got some deer meat this is an opportunity to serve and help somebody you know don't take your cut out of it so to speak is the way i look at it. that's just my own personal opinion Right. And it's one of those things we can't ask our processors to have to police a policy that says uh, they can keep the back straps, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, and then the next person might be, well, I want to keep the, the loins and maybe a f- couple nice roasts, too, and then I'll donate the rest. Well, it, the whole thing just gets really muddy at that point in time and very hard to control. And because of the fact that we've got supporters that are that are basically providing us the funding to then pay this processing, their expectation as well is that is that we're paying that the 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 bills we're paying for processing is is all going to the hungry. So yeah. so that's why that rule's in place. You can keep parts out if you want, uh, but then we would ask you to pay the processing fees. So. Yeah, and I think that's fair enough. One thought I just had too. Let's say you shoot a really really nice buck and you want to get it mounted and you take it there. You know, typically most processing places are going to have an additional charge if you want to have that buck caped out to go to a taxidermist. So is that the same thing where you would just have to pay that that cape fee? Yeah, yeah, exactly, because that processor would would at that point, like you said, they're going to have a separate fee that would be paid for that anyways. The processor understands that their agreement with Hunter Sharing the Harvest is just for uh, the processing of the usable meat, the edible meat. So from there, anything else would just be a separate bill between between the processor and the hunter. So it doesn't keep you from from keeping any of those other parts of your deer if you want the hide, if you want it cape, antlers, of course, all of that stuff. That's totally up to you, just like it would be if you were taking it to be processed for your family. We're only concerned about the meat, and that's what we're paying for. So anything else would just be worked out between you and the processor. Mm. Maybe a dumb question, but I'm curious. Have you, in the time you've done this, have you ever come across situations where people talked negative about this movement? I can't think of a case where anybody spoke negative about the movement. The things we will typically hear about and we tend to have to deal with once or twice a year are things like folks who, for instance, are confused about CWD. Uh, we had an issue a few years ago where actually one of the regional food banks uh, decided they weren't going to take any deer from our program uh, because of fears over CWD. And quite frankly, that's when we kind of revised our model with the processors, too, where in the past we had always told them, we really want you to send it to your regional food bank and let them do the distribution. Well, when that particular food bank 
decided they weren't going to take venison, that suddenly put us in a hurry up offense where we had to reach out to the processors and basically uh, give them that authority to make their own decisions about where it went. So if they knew of local places they could send it, go for it, because otherwise your your regional food bank's not going to take it at this point in time. So that's when we kind of changed that model. And frankly, that's something that I probably, as the executive director, need to revisit with those folks to kind of uh, see if we can't allay their fears if those fears are still there uh, about taking donated venison because to us we're we're making we're taking every precaution possible to make sure that regardless of anybody's uh, feeling or concern about CWD there won't be any deer there won't be any venison in the food system that that has CWD we're taking the precautions we need to make sure that doesn't happen so so that's really the only type of thing that we ever run into it's it's those things that are more topics of debate about the safety of venison or whatever. Uh, it's not about the mission. We, we don't ever hear about people saying, I don't like the idea of hunters donating deer. You know, it's not, it's not at that fundamental level. It's usually at some other level where there's confusion about eating venison, basically. Well, that's good. And, I don't, I haven't, this is something I should look up and research. Maybe you would know. I'm kind of curious, like, what do we know? CWD's been around for a long time. I mean, uh, I know this, I feel like it was the early 2000s when Wisconsin was going through, you know, bouts and making management changes in their state because of CWD. And, you know, now it's in Pennsylvania and, you know, a host of other states. And, like, I have no real good idea of what the, the safety and, you know, food consumption things are when it comes to CWD. I mean, is that something you, you, you have knowledge on, Randy? I don't have a whole lot of great understanding about it other than the fact that I understand about the high-risk parts and, and the brain matter and cerebral tissue and things like that that, that make it very uh, transferable to other deer and why we need to take precautions not to have those high-risk materials on the landscape and so forth. When it comes to the human side of things, my the extent of my understanding is the fact that at this point there has been no connection made between humans and being able to either contract the disease CWD or some variant of it that might be, uh, you know, from the human side that, yeah. that would that have some kind of adverse affection to, to human health. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's been no connection made. Now, the thing is, we know through history that, that in the past there have been things that we thought maybe weren't dangerous. And then at some point in time, it was discovered that there was some kind of connection That's to right. something like that. So again, from our organization standpoint, we're going to hedge our bets on the safer side of things. Certainly. And that's why we do things like this protocol, just so that again, at the end of the day, we can say we didn't take any risks. And if some, and if God forbid there's ever found to be any connections between humans and the disease, we can rest easy knowing that nothing that, that was provided by our program contributed to that out there in the public. Because obviously at the end of the day, while we consider ourselves kind of a, a hunting organization because that's what we do and that's who we are and that's our mechanism at the end of the day hunter sharing the harvest is a social service organization so we're providing uh, a service to our community and we have a high responsibility to their safety and their health so that's why you know we're just always going to err on the side of caution when it comes to any of these whether it's cwd or or 
the next thing that might show up at some point in time down the road. We're always going to err on the side of the public safety. That's great. So you talked about the the previous goal of 100,000 pounds of of meat annually, and you've seen, you've reached that goal in a lot of cases. So do you have new goals and objectives within HSH that you'd like to share? We don't have any official new change, although, you know, I've hinted, I've hinted to the board a few different times that, you know, I think it's pretty safe to say we've, we've, we've met our, our annual $100,000 or 100,000 pound goal that we've had for many years, you know, and, and now we've had a number of seasons that approach 200,000 pounds this past season where we kind of blew things out of the water and had that tremendous 235,000 pounds. So while we haven't officially changed our goal from 100,000, uh, me personally, uh, I would like to see us continue to have seasons, uh, in the plus 200,000 pounds, just because we've, we've demonstrated we can do it. So if we're all doing our jobs and if we're all out there really promoting this mission, uh, I don't like, I don't like the idea of looking back. Uh, it's, it's obviously quite a challenge when you kind of set a new bar for yourself each year, but, but that's really the way you advance anything in your life or in your, or in your professional, uh, career or anything like that. You want to continue to do more. And as a, charitable organization we just want to continue to expand our mission so as far as i'm concerned uh i'd like to see us in the plus 200,000 pounds from this this point on so and we we've demonstrated we can do that so that's but we're also as an organization we are looking uh strategically at what the next five and ten years look at look like we just completed a uh a strategic planning process where we've started to think about a lot of different things as well that that kind of affect trends that we see like the uh, the processing industry itself has really been kind of contracting in recent years. We've lost a lot of those sort of generational family run uh, deer processing operations the same way a lot of other family run businesses happen to go. Uh, the new generation might not be so interested in in doing this this skilled trade moving forward or they're all dealing with the same problems that it comes with uh, workforce and and being able to hire good people and dealing with expenses and the cost to operate a business that are challenges for them. So we're looking as an organization at how we can make any inroads just to kind of help, uh, you know, mitigate that issue. So we're looking at things like, you know, how can we work with people like the Department of Education, the Department of Ag and others to get the meat cutting trades in front of young people when they're in high school, thinking about what they're going to do uh, after high school, whether they're going to go on to college or or a skilled trade or something like that, a lot of kids around the state are never going to hear anything about uh, deer processing or butchering as a whole uh, as an opportunity for them. So we've had some encouraging conversations with folks at the state level about even if nothing else, just trying to make that availability to to young people or to adult learners that are trying to. Uh, look at developing a new skill uh, to make themselves marketable and to find a rewarding career. How can we make meat cutting something that's that's visible to them? Because there's no shortage of demand across the state uh, for meat cutters in general and, spe- and specifically for deer processors. So it's more about how do you fill that pipeline with people that have sort of an entrepreneurial spirit and that would have that skill set and the business acumen to run a processing uh, operation like this. Uh, and then we look at things like, do we as an organization need to be able to also kind of shore that up 
by looking at ways to maybe have anything from mobile processing units that might be able to move around the state to some of the areas where we don't have a processor nearby or things like making a reefer truck available in a central location during that first weekend of deer season or something, again, in an area where we don't have a processor real close and have people man that, uh, take all the information that they would normally do at the processor, put all of those deer into a reefer truck and then transport them uh, to our nearest processor to, again, just make the process easier for hunters. And maybe five or 10 years out from now, does Hunter Sharing the Harvest have some brick and mortar uh, processing facilities? You know, not necessarily, but we need to be prepared as an organization looking forward if we continue to see a downward trend in the availability of processors, you know, because part of the problem is we're seeing a lot of people that are starting to process deer themselves because of the fact that they don't have someone close or because it's becoming cost prohibitive to have their deer processed by someone uh, because a lot of places here in the state, you're paying over a hundred dollars to have a, a basic uh, deer processing done. So that doesn't work for our program because we can't accept deer that have been self-processed because we don't have any control over quality at that point. Uh, so we need to have processors in order for our operation to work. Uh, so while a trend might be developing for people to self-process, we need to have contingency plans in place so that we can continue to have deer coming through uh, an inspected, safe processing uh, facility to be donated. So. Yeah, that's a great point, Randy. Are there any bullet points or pieces of information that I would have missed in asking you that you'd like to share with us before we let you go today? I think we've covered most everything. Again, for most people, what I recommend is getting familiar with our website. It's a real easy one to remember. It's sharedeer.org. And we've got all sorts of information on there about the program and how it works. You can find your local processor on there. Uh, we've got a resource page with a lot of handouts and information that you can download that'll help answer questions for you. Uh, we've got a page where you can find your local county coordinator if you have questions or maybe you're part of a a sportsman's group or you're on the fair board or something like that and you'd be interested in having hunters sharing the harvest have a presence and talk about the mission there's ways for you to reach out there and there's also ways for processors and potential coordinators to reach out to us and let us know if you'd like to be involved with our program uh, coordinators i'm always looking for folks that want to help out in their local county uh, to just spread our the mission and, and talk about what we do. So there's a lot of opportunities on there. And then of course, as a fundraising organization, you can go on and make donations to us as well. So the website is really uh, the one-stop shop for everything you want to know about Hunter Sharing the Harvest and how you can help us. That's fantastic. I really like that and I really appreciate that. Um, Randy, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us on the show today. <clears throat> uh, make, you, know, you left the information there on how to check it out so everybody that's listening to this i said it before i'll say it again shoot more does and you've got an option to where to go with them there you go i couldn't agree more and i appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk with you mitch yep have a great year have a great season all right you do the same <laughs>